back here on the punch out very happy to be with you here on the 23rd of april 2021 friday very happy to be with you as we close out the week plenty for you here on the show today we're going to be talking about well whether or not there was a coup in chad and what's going on with the surprising and in many ways covered with some intrigue death of the president there in that african nation we're going to be talking about some new polling that has come out on the issue of policing in the united states But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with a racist, rampaged mob violence in Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is on edge a day after hundreds of Israelis rampaged through East Jerusalem, chanting, death to Arabs, beating people and destroying property, ending up with at least 105 Palestinians being wounded after police intervened to prevent any form of Palestinian self-defense. The rampage follows several days of attacks on Palestinians in East Jerusalem during Ramadan by pro-apartheid groups. The call for this action, specifically last night, came from a group called Lahava. That's a hard line apartheid group that openly calls for violence against Arabs and advocates extreme segregation and also a ban, in line with extreme segregation, a ban on Jewish-Arab intermarriage. Lahava is closely tied to the so-called Jewish Power Party, which promotes a similar brand of hardcore apartheid politics in the Knesset. It's the legislature there in Israel. And also, by the way, this Jewish Power Party ran in the last election on one of the more quote-unquote mainstream political list. So certainly extreme views, but not beyond the pale there in terms of the Israeli legislature. The days of attacks on Palestinians by these and other right-wing groups were accompanied by just what can only be called a colonial humiliation by the Israeli government happening at the same time. This year, during Ramadan, for no real reason, it seems, other than just to torment Palestinian people, decided to close a promenade area that's popular with those coming from prayers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Overall, just the atmosphere of intimidation towards Palestinian people you can see from both these thugs and, well, another form of thugs in terms of the state. Very clear here. Last night's rampaging mobs, which also included many supporters of the land-grabbing settler movement, was halted by a mass of cops near the Damascus Gate there in East Jerusalem. The police arrived just in time to prevent the mob from running into a gathering crowd of Palestinians determined to defend their communities as news of the rampage that was going on spread. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz narrates, quote, it was easy to discern the difference in how the police reacted at the Damascus Gate. The police were very aggressive and used hundreds of stun grenades, flooded the streets with foul-smelling skunk water, used sponge-tipped bullets, and in general treated every small group of Palestinians as a potential threat. On the other side of the gate, 100 meters to the west, the police made 
uh, do throughout most of the evening with shoving or using mounted police, and only after a few hours did they make use of a few stun grenades and skunk water. The result of dozens of wounded Arabs and no Jews wounded by the police speak for themselves, end quote. So in case the full force of that didn't hit you, rather than turn the bulk of their force on the rampaging mob, the police, in fact, turned on those the mob was targeting, resulting in, as we mentioned earlier, 105 Palestinians at least being wounded, 22 with serious injuries, according to the Red Crescent. The double standard speaks directly to the basic reality over there in Israel. It is an apartheid state. While the mob represented the more extreme end of Israeli politics, it did not represent a marginal force. And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, the Knesset is filled with people of either exactly or not that far removed uh, in terms uh, of the politics that were represented there by the mob. And the police, of course, do in fact view Arabs as a threat and the mob as a nuisance. And all this comes as 328 lawmakers in the U.S. Congress signed a letter urging the White House to oppose any efforts to place conditions on U.S. military aid to Israel based on concerns around the various abuses happening under apartheid. And this was something that came up recently because Senator Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had suggested perhaps, perhaps there should be some conditions on the military aid. Now, of course, the Biden administration opposes any conditioning. Uh, Biden campaigned against it, so it was never much of a possibility. But nevertheless, 328 lawmakers still felt the need to fly the flag for supporting Israeli apartheid. So while the State Department expressed quote-unquote concern over last night's mob violence, there's no doubt that the United States will just do nothing to counter it, but will also continue its wholehearted support of the state-sponsored mob violence that permeates all of Palestine through the agency of the Israeli military occupation. With the obvious relative impunity that the mob was given last night, some are predicting more violence in East Jerusalem during Ramadan. The one thing we can be sure about, Palestinians will be bearing the brunt of it. The Washington Post and ABC conducted a poll during the Chauvin trial asking people some questions regarding policing. And the results are certainly interesting, although many perhaps not so surprising. Overall, 60% of people told pollsters they thought that the U.S. should do more to hold police accountable for mistreating black people. Relatively unsurprisingly, 83% of black people agreed with that statement. 67% of Latinos agreed and 53% of whites. Now also, perhaps unsurprisingly, only 31% of Republicans agreed. Interestingly enough, 65% of self-described moderates said they thought the country should do more to hold the police accountable. 67% of people under the age of 40 agreed with that as compared to 50% over the age of 65. 67% of women agreed as compared to 53% of men. The poll also asked if people uh, thought that Biden was doing too much, too little, or the right amount in terms of reforming, quote unquote, reforming police practices. Among Democrats, an important constituency for Biden, I would assume, nearly 50%, 47% to be exact, said he was doing too little. 43%, by the way, said he was doing just the right amount. 51% of those under 40 also thought Biden was doing too little, and 49% of black people, that's the plurality there, polled, uh, thought that Biden is doing too little in terms of efforts to quote-unquote reform the police. The poll additionally asked if people felt that the criminal legal system treated black people equally with whites. 63% responded that it did not. 
A similar poll in 2012 had that number at 55%. 57% of whites in this recent survey said that they felt the criminal legal system did not treat blacks equally with whites. That's up from 44% since 2014. Now, so much can be said about these numbers. And, and as always with polling, many of the questions, you know, are loaded in and of themselves. What does quote unquote reform mean? Uh, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, I think you can take some general but interesting and notable takeaways here from my point of view. Now, first and foremost is that there has been a significant increase in the number of white people willing to recognize the existence of racism in the criminal legal system. Now, clearly the main thing that has changed on that front since, say, 2012, has been the rise of a powerful anti-racist movement in the wake of the Ferguson uprising. So whatever else you can say about how that movement's going and how much further it needs to go, clearly it has had a powerful cultural impact. And secondly, it's a major reflection on the deeply anti-democratic nature of the country in and of itself. Despite a large majority of people thinking that more should be done around the uh, issue of police treating Black people totally inequitably, there are actually no substantial proposals that would change the status quo in any appreciable way anywhere on the horizon politically. There's more than one reason for that, of course. And whether or not 60% of people who support any, would support any particular proposal uh, to address these issues is, of course, an open question. But the fact that the Electoral College, the Senate, and gerrymandering give minority opinions extensive power in the political system, maybe in many ways, minority opinions almost it seems like has majority power when you look at policy. But undoubtedly, this fact plays a role in restricting the debate. I mean, just think about how it all played out last year. In the immediate aftermath of the election, the uprising against racism was blamed for Republican gains in close races for many Democrats in various places. And this was not Republicans or pundits, this was Democrats, you may remember, were saying, oh, if it wouldn't have been for that defund the police, we would have done a lot better. And many of the people even who succeeded were held back by it. That was the narrative. And that is obviously driven by the uh, massive amplification of minority political power based on things, again, like the Senate, like the Electoral College and gerrymandering, not to mention the other things. It's really just quite a statement, really, about this so-called quote-unquote democracy in the United States that the political system seems to act to reinforce the minority view, not the majority viewpoint, on a huge range of crucially important issues, including policing. Well, the African nation of Chad has been in the news recently after just a fairly stunning announcement a few days ago that the former president now, Idris Deba, uh, had died while fighting rebels. And this was at the same time he had also just declared victory in what was, you know, essentially a sham election. But it was marking really just another installment of his roughly 30-year reign in power. So he announces that he won the elections, and next thing you know, he's dead. A lot of people wondering, what is going on? Now, his son, Debe's son, and one of his sons and senior military officials quickly dissolved the uh, parliament. And to be fair, that was basically a rubber stamp anyway, but they quickly dissolved the parliament and declared an 18-month military-led transitional government. The son, of course, is going to be the head of it. Now, Chad is really the central ally for France and eh, to a slightly lesser extent, but probably for the United States as well, for their military missions in the Sahelian region of Africa. And Dubé was a notable regional leader and supporting their agenda. And his death and, as I mentioned, the just quick transition have sparked all these rumors of intrigue around the whole thing. Now, 
Debate came to power in the 1990s at the head of his own group of armed rebels. And multiple times during his presidency, Chad's various rebel groups have challenged him in some way, shape, or form. Also, many of them with armed force. Some of them even got as far as the gates of the presidential palace before they were pushed back by the army of Chad. Debay has presided over deep inequalities. According to the World Food Program, for instance, 66.2% of its population of 15 million live in severe poverty. It's ranked 187th out of 189 countries in the Human Development Index. And this is despite having significant oil wealth. But despite that just criminal record of lack of care for his own people, he has been a favorite or was a favorite, you could say, uh, of many of these Western governments. Emmanuel Macron, for instance, attended his funeral, praising him both at the funeral and in the lead up to traveling to the funeral. What Debay really understood was that Chad sits in a strategically important location on the continent, bordering Libya, Sudan, Niger, Central African Republic, Cameroon, and Nigeria. So it makes it a crucial power projection platform. And indeed, France's military operations in Africa are based out of Chad. Chad also has a powerful army of its own, honed through a lot of internal conflict and repression that plays an important role in the Western-led military adventures, also in the Sahelian region of Africa. So his total lack of concern for his own people's actual well-being, not a problem for the U.S. and Europe, since Chad was a partner in their geostrategic schemes. Given all that, how does a group of rebels end up killing this powerful leader? Well, the first answer and the one that a lot of people are asking is perhaps they didn't, and maybe the whole thing was concocted as part of a coup. Uh, Debay is certainly known for leading troops at the front, and the, as the rebels were driving on the capital, it undoubtedly could have been foreseen that he would go to the front and thus arranged by the right set of people uh, to manufacture his death in a way that seemed legitimate. Certainly after 30 years, you can see how a power grab, perhaps from inside his own family, could emerge in some sort of palace intrigue. And second is, of course, well, the rebels themselves just got relatively lucky. But adding some intrigue to that, to get relatively lucky, they had to have been sort of a relative match for the Chadian forces, which means they had to be pretty well armed. And this group of rebels, a coalition with the acronym FACT, are known to be close with Libyan general Khalifa Hiftar, who leads basically one half of the country. And there's a long history now of political meddling back and forth between Libya and Chad, and certainly one wonders if this latest rebel drive is tied to a deeper regional power play. Macron attending Debay's funeral shows the real concern of the West here, the maintenance of their power projection platform in Africa. France quickly co-signed the interim military government, and the U.S. tacitly assented while expressing some concern. Clearly, they want to have the military consolidate power quickly to assure there's going to be no disruption in the broader African military deployments that they have going on. Whether or not the interim government can hold things together, that's much less clear. While Chad was never really much of a quote-unquote democracy in the first place, the interim government, for what it's worth, did violate Chad's constitution in terms of what the actual transition of power uh, should be should a president die, which, if nothing else, reinforces how cynical the U.S. and EU support for quote-unquote democracy really is. Important when they can use it as a cudgel against someone they hate, irrelevant when it comes to maintaining their own power. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. 
And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. 